Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Scott Sturt, founder and CEO of Venture for Canada and your host. The focus of this podcast is to hear from change makers and young Canadian entrepreneurs to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneurial mindset and skills. In season two, we'll be chatting with young Canadians about their unconventional career trajectories and what it's like to be young entrepreneurial leaders. I'm excited to dive into these conversations about how to foster your entrepreneurial mindset and drive. Lucia Gallardo is a 2017 Venture for Canada fellow alumni and a Honduran serial entrepreneur that bridges technology with justice and inclusion movements. She is the founder of Emerge, a socio-technology solutions development lab offering impact as a service for companies and governments looking to address pressing industry and global problems. She also co-founded Tavik, a community for nascent entrepreneurs in Latin America, and Donna Unlibro, an educational foundation taking on taboo issues such as undocumented immigration across Central America. She joined the advisory boards of Unity and Penta to spearhead their impact technology strategies. Lucia also co-chairs the International Expansion Council at Women Entrepreneurs Global, a startup innovation studio for female founders. She is also accepted to head up We Global's Exponential Technologies Division. In her spare time, Lucia sits on a few advisory boards for an array of meaningful issues to her, such as Rainforest Partnership, the Caribbean Blockchain Alliance, and some early stage ventures founded by persons of color and or women. Lucia is an MIT innovator under 35 and a Royal Bank Canada Woman of Influence. Lucia, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. How are you? I am doing pretty well, and that's great to hear that that you're doing uh, well also. I think in the whole context of the pandemic, as, as we tape in May 2021, uh, doing as well as can, uh, kind of under the circumstances. And yeah. as we were chatting before, I'm glad to hear that you're able to spend some time in Honduras with your family. Yeah, it's been an interesting year for sure. Um, and I am also grateful that I get to spend the time with my family. It's uh, a month that's really important to my family because it relates to my parents. There's Mother's Day or their anniversary, birthdays. So it's an exciting month to be home and then, you know, back to work. And, and hopefully I'll be able to uh, see a little more of the world this year than I did last year. Yeah, hopefully as we all get vaccinated, uh, that late later in 2021, it's going to be a little bit more normal than uh the last uh, 14 months, but fingers crossed. (laughs) If one thing COVID has taught us, it is there is a lot of uncertainty. Uh, So to start our conversation, uh, can you give our listeners a high level overview of your startup Emerge? Sure. Um, So we function like a design and development studio. Uh, Generally, organizations will come to us with a particular problem that they're trying to address. Um, That might be, uh, for example, optimizing their supply chain, or it might be that they want to distribute public services in a, in a more efficient way or in a more transparent way. Um, and then what we do is we take uh, a collection of different types of technology and we try to build a solution that um, will work for them and will address the problem along with uh, meeting targets that are aligned with the UN SDGs. So um, we do a lot of work uh, that are, that's aligned with the UN SDGs and we've done work with uh, government ministries and private companies and um, some coalitions and, and other groups that are really looking to uh, solve these private sector problems or industry problems in a way that um, philosophically is also a public good. For our listeners, can you define uh, the UN SDGs and why they're important? Sure. Uh, so those are the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Um, they are a laundry list of the world's more pressing problems. 
um, and they range from reducing poverty and gender inequality or all types of inequality to addressing uh, deforestation and destruction to uh, marine life. Uh, they include things like improving the quality of our education and healthcare access and things like that. So the list of 17 problems that are really intended to uh, boost the quality of life for people all over the world. And they're really important because they help all countries and persons alike um, sort of commit to and work toward a particular set of targets that uh, will really have meaningful impact uh, for people around the world. And so we're hoping that, you know, the more awareness is raised about the UN SDGs, the more people and companies and uh, and key stakeholders can work toward uh, achieving those targets. I agree. I think the UN SDGs is, is something that everybody should know about. And it's something, unfortunately, that is still a lot of people don't know about, but I think is a great framework for, for assessing impact uh, for any organization, a government, for-profit, not-for-profit, uh, one thing kind of on the topic of Emerge is can you t tell our listeners a little bit about the, your founding story and, and how you, you came to, to create the company? Sure. I like to joke that it was started when I was eight um, because I've always been very, very passionate about um, justice and inclusion and understanding inequity and inequality. Um, and so uh, over time, I had sort of taken the route of the public sector and tried to understand it from a development perspective. Um, but as I like sort of got my first jobs in Canadian tech. I was living in Montreal at the time. Um, I started to fall in love with the way that technology could be used to address um, all kinds of problems really. But I was a little bit frustrated at the fact that I was working on consumer problems rather than I guess societal problems. Uh, so the company was really born out of that desire. And I remember uh, having you know been accepted into Venture for Canada was kind of like a catalyst because I knew where I was going. Um, and I think I've always respected this that you've told me, uh, which is that this notion that, you know, VFC is for two kinds of people. One is the person that has no idea that they're born to be an entrepreneur and they sort of stumble into it. And suddenly they're, they're, they've found so much meaning in their life through entrepreneurship. But then there's this other group of people that know exactly where they're headed into this route of entrepreneurship. And VFC really just helps catalyze them. And I fell always into that second group of people because I knew that I wanted to start a company. I knew what it wanted to do. I just... Uh, needed some of the right tools and, and combinations of of resources and people and, and things to do it. And so uh, I started the company in 2018, um, which was around the time that I was in the middle of my fellowship. Um, so it's been a, a long journey since then. And we now operate globally and we've got projects, about 18 projects now. So I'm really excited with how the company has grown. And I'm really grateful for every single, uh, you know, resource and person and a tool that BFC has provided along the way. How has Emerge changed as a company since you founded it in 2018? Oh, so much. <laughs> um, I think in the beginning, a lot of it was, I, it was, it was such a hard company to explain. And people kept saying we were crazy for trying to take on more than one product, more than one problem. Um, we were thinking from the get-go just very, very ambitiously. And even though, you know, a lot of people questioned what the common threads were with some of the products, like I had a very, very clear image of what I wanted to build. I just at the time wasn't great at maybe explaining it or um, I think it just needed some refinement. So I think from then till now, it's just become, you know, something that is much more clearly defined where you can now see the common threads in the work that we do. I also think before we had a lot of... Uh, projects that were born out of our own team that, that, about issues that we were really passionate about. And then just slowly the company 
started getting all of these requests. And now we're doing a lot of work in which people sort of come with a problem already and it's a defined problem. And we just sort of start responding to it. And that allows us to be really experimental with the solution and to reuse some components of architecture that we've used before. And I think uh, it went from sort of being like its own little studio into becoming sort of half consultancy, half design studio. And I think I'm really excited by the possibilities of what we could do with that, because as more organizations come to us, we're able to find these common threads and maybe even get them to work together in, in some way. So it's changed uh, a fair bit in terms of business model, team makeup. Uh, it's changed a bit in terms of how we even define and describe the, the company. Um, there are some things that have always held true, which are generally our commitment to um, you know, playing with frontier technology and democratizing access to this technology, and also um, our commitment to social good and the UN SDGs as like a guiding post for all of the work that we do. I think your experience as an entrepreneur is similar to many people launch different ventures where often an idea evolves uh, a lot over time. I can yeah. uh, say in context of Venture for Canada, uh, it's I've been doing Venture for Canada full-time for almost seven years. And initially we started as just this uh, solely on a fellowship program. And over yeah. seven years, the fellowship program itself has evolved, but we now run half a dozen other programs are in many ways, very different. BFC looks today very different than I thought uh, it would have looked like seven years ago. Yeah. And I think so many entrepreneurs, you know, they launch companies uh, and sometimes 10 years later, it can look completely different. Yes. than what one <laughs> initially <laughs> set out to do. I was hiring a chief of staff recently and uh I, we were having our first onboarding call and I made a list of all the things that are currently active. And as I was making that list, I guess like because I spend my day context switching between all of the projects, I don't really think about the aggregate all that much unless I'm like purposefully thinking about strategy. And so when I was making the list, I looked at the list and I'm like, this is everything we have going. And I, it was so difficult to reconcile like 2018 to where we are now and the kinds of projects we were taking on. And, and you know, as I was on that call, it was really just like a, a moment of, I don't know, pride, but also just confusion at where we started and where we are now, I guess. It's something I think that's so important is, is to reflect on the progress that, that takes place over time. And I think entrepreneurs can be very perfectionist uh, in yeah. how they, they operate and that sometimes it's it's easy it's easy to forget about all of the progress that happens, particularly in the context of several years, yeah. because entrepreneurs are always thinking big and they're always oh well, I haven't done this yet or yeah. they they're constantly moving the goalposts. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one thing in, in an earlier episode of uh, the podcast, we talked with a venture Canada fellow who uh, recommends hype documents, which are basically it's a, a running list of all your accomplishments that that have kind of happened. And anyway, it's a it's a great tool that. I'll re, re uh, uh, up again to, for our listeners, because I think it's something that is, is important for, for all people just to, to celebrate the wins, particularly in the midst of this pandemic. I fall in that category of perfectionism. And I think very often, you know, some, some of my friends will be like, oh my gosh, let's celebrate, you know, that you signed this deal. And I'm like, I'm not celebrating that I signed this deal and celebrating once the impact is achieved, like what I'm going for, I want to solve the problem. And to me, that's the part worth celebrating. And sometimes I listen to myself say that, and I'm like, wait, that's a problem. You know, I should be celebrating a little victory or a big victory or whatever. And so that's an, a very interesting tip that I might have to take on. Yeah. It's, it's so important to celebrate the wins and yeah. yeah and, and to not be too hard on oneself, I, I think is, is something and have that self-compassion, I think is, is crucial. One thing that is also interesting about your business is that you've bootstrapped it, uh, which means you haven't raised outside uh, funding. So yeah. what advice do you have for entrepreneurs on how to bootstrap uh, a company? I think I think 
think my journey as a bootstrapper has been fascinating because it wasn't necessarily a choice. It was like something that happened organically because of the way that the company was formed and that, you know, it wasn't an easy company to explain in a three minute pitch or something like that. And the questions were always coming about why we weren't focusing on this one product line rather than, you know, diversifying from the get go. And um, so I think it, and it's also interesting because I'm a female founder, I'm a Latina founder. And so if I'm cognizant of the amount of, you know, venture capital and, and angel funding that actually goes to founders like me, it's very low number, right? So um, it's interesting to me that bootstrapping has become such a, such a good word and such a, like a, not a, tr like a trendy word. Um, when in reality, like there are many people and many founders across Canada and across the world that they don't, they didn't really make that conscious choice. So the first thing is, you know, but if you are a bootstrapper by choice, like amazing, it's a great way to build a really strong foundation for a healthy company. And then if you're not there by choice, then I think the, the best tip I can give is that like the second that you stop channeling all of your efforts into finding an investor and start channeling those efforts into finding your first customer, I think the moment where in my mind, I stopped like thinking negatively about the inability to find an investor that really understood the vision, then I think at that point, that switches, it becomes a more empowering moment for you as a founder. And I think it's easier to start sort of selling to your customer because your customer will understand the benefits to them more so than an investor might understand um, like the, the ROI in a couple of years if your vision is something that's a little bit incompatible with like traditional funding mechanisms. And that's okay because there are many types of funding opportunities and there are many businesses that require specific types of uh, funding opportunities and they all don't need to go down the venture route, right? Um, and there are some companies that need it because they need liquidity to be able to scale fast, but a lot of other businesses, they can be healthy by just growing in a bootstrap manner. So I think the first piece is like acknowledging why you're in this position of needing to bootstrap. And if it's, you know, uh, the reason that, that you think your business will become stronger because of it, then I think that's something that's really respectable. And I think that um, if it's a position that you sort of find yourself in by other contexts that may be beyond your control, that the acceptance component is really important so that you can start making decisions from the perspective of someone that really wants to be resourceful and creative. Um, and then the next bit is to really find people around you that are going to be willing to support your vision. And, um, and even if they do this one favor for you, that that, that one favor is really helping you work toward what you where you want to get to in the, in the next couple of months. Um, because those targets are going to be really, really make or break when you're a bootstrap founder. You need to meet those targets constantly, and uh, it's not—it's okay to ask for help to get there. Um, and even if they do one small thing that moves you toward your target, that's enough. Um, and and like you should be grateful for that, and you should continuously try to find people that will um, do that for you and that will help you get there because no one can do it alone, right? Agreed. And one point that I think is particularly important for our listeners to to understand, particularly if they're aspiring entrepreneurs is that probably 99.5% of companies are not suitable for venture capital. That the only yeah. companies that are really suitable for venture capital are companies that have the potential for huge financial returns, like 20, 30, you know, X very quickly. That are these- or hardware. Kind of, yeah, or hardware, or, or highly research yeah. and development intensive uh, yeah. companies. Yeah. Companies that require a huge amount of capital to kind of get, get going. Yeah. And- mm -hmm. Uh, if you're a, a sort of a traditional business or your services company, it probably doesn't make sense in, in the early stages to, to raise outside uh, capital. And part of it, the reason why it doesn't make sense is that equi the equity of your company is the cheapest at the very beginning when you're just get getting going. So you don't want to be giving equity 
out to people when it's really cheap. You want to be giving equity, selling equity when it's really expensive, which is why some of the entrepreneurs who have by far the biggest personal financial sale or financial windfalls when they sell their company are the people who often held off uh, uh, taking in any outside investment until they reach that more growth stage. And they say, okay, I need $200 million to scale this, to become a multi-billion dollar company. I'm going to raise the outside capital and uh, at a, something that has a valuation in the billions of dollars. So just more, more for, for our listeners is uh, I think what Lucy is uh, saying in terms of the importance of bootstrapping a business is really important. And not only can it help you financially benefit more, it also allows you to retain control of your company for longer, which yeah. is one of the reasons why people yeah. pursue entrepreneurship. Yeah. And I think it's also like, it really depends on, on how purpose-centric you are, right? Like for us, it was, we were in the early stages building really critical infrastructure for digital identification, which, you know, involves very, very sensitive data. But if we're looking, you know, down and our company is with these investors that are looking to maximize their ROI, then the nature of the data we were collecting can be monetized for in ways that we weren't comfortable with in terms of the purpose of our company. So we were really weary of taking an external investment from people that would pressure us to go in a particular direction with some of the data we were collecting. We wanted to make it sovereign data to the user. So I think you know there are many, many questions to ask when deciding to take on external investment. And I think that really the founder deep down knows the truth and that We've done a, a terrible job as a startup industry in, uh, I guess, equating the perceived status of a startup with how much money they're able to raise through dilutive equity, because really the most ad admirable companies, in my view, are the ones that have been able to resourcefully grow and protect their cap table um, because they knew that, you know, down the line, this was going to make their business much more resilient. A funny announcement can be a great sign. It's a sign a company has a lot of traction, but there's a lot of companies that raise a lot of money that end up being complete busts. Uh, and there's likewise, uh, for instance, there, there's somebody who we recently had speak to Venture for Canada Fellows who founded a company called Geotab 20 years ago, uh, immigrant from South Africa to Canada. And he, he founded a Geotab shortly after immigrating to Canada. Today, Geotab has 1,500 employees, $400 million in annual revenue, and uh, it's completely owned by him and the employees. They've never raised any outside capital. Point being is you can build like in and in 20 years is not a, a super long time horizon. Like a lot of times people think of 60 year old family businesses that are, are still owned in the span of 10, 20 years, somebody can still build a very large company without raising any uh, outside investment. And that's 20 years with old tech. Like now new tech lets you build things much faster than you could before. So even that 20 years can be shortened just by using the right tools today. One thing that uh, probably stuck out to our listeners when I was going through your bio is you do a lot of different things, Lucia. You you have a ton of different involvement. Yeah, I, you are one of the busiest people that I I know, uh, and uh, it is super impressive how you juggle a lot of different things at once. So one of the things I've been uh, really thinking about and, and would love to ask you is, how do you manage your time and how do you manage all of those different commitments? Did you hear that, Mom? I'm a really busy person. <laughs> I can't respond to like every message, right? <laughs> I'm teasing, but the, but thank you. I appreciate that because I do uh, pride myself in working really hard. And I think um, a big, a big turning point for me was that uh, the realization that it really was not about necessarily managing my time, but understanding how I manage my energy um, and the energy that I have to put into different things. And so um 
for me, my brain, it really, it's a curious brain. So it's really important for me to work on different types of projects. Like it does not suit me to do one single thing for long, long amounts of time. Um, and so in understanding that about myself, maybe that's part of the reason why Emerge was really ambitious from the get-go. It was partially because it was a personality trait of mine, but in understanding, okay, that's how I prefer working. Um, then I was able to sort of decide, well, I'm going to partition some of my days where I'm going to work out in the, in the early morning, which I think is super important and you have to be consistent with. Um, and then after that, I'm going to dedicate some days to just taking calls um, and then some days to just doing deep, deep work. I'm going to take Saturdays completely off because I need one day where I just pursue all of these like free interests that I have that have nothing to do with work maybe, or might be tangentially related in that they might inspire something at work, but I'll end up spending the day at a museum or reading a book or going to the beach or, you know, on a boat or whatever. Um, and so I think just understanding how to refuel my own energy and say, you know, during the day I have a, a slump in the afternoon. So I eat lunch and then I always have a slump. It doesn't matter if I'm eating super healthy, if I'm hydrated, doesn't matter. And I have coffee. There's like a more a moment in time in the afternoon that I have a slump. So I take a 20 minute nap every day. Um, and then I wake up and I'm super energized. But it's just because I understood that during that moment in that day, it's, you know, it might be 20 minutes. Yeah, sure. In the middle of the workday. But at the same time, like I wake up super energized and I can go for a lot more hours. Right. So I think really understanding your body and your energy and the way that you can go about your day and trying to you know, give specific focus into different tasks. Once you understand the patterns of this, of this, of your body, then it becomes easier to say, I'm going to schedule my day around the way my own body and my mind work best so that I can, you know, potentially give the best of me throughout all these different things that you have to do. Um, and then I have like very strict time blocks. So for example, for the things I sit on the board on of, I do like two hour time blocks every two weeks so that I can give them some strategic hours. Um, then when I, I'm working on emerge projects. I focus on specific projects and deadlines at a time. Um, and I keep Tuesdays and Wednesdays, zero calls, uh, usually, <laughs> and uh, just dedicate those days to like deep focused work. And then I take calls Mondays, Thursdays, and Fridays. And I've worked that into my schedule. I use x.ai to manage my calendar and it already knows not to schedule anything on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So um, that is what works for me. But I think the key piece in that is hopefully something that that uh, listeners can take home with them is this notion of like understand what works for you not for your time but for your energy and then your time will become like how you spend your time will become obvious because of the the way that you have maximized your energy those are some great points one thing i want to mention first is there's a great book called when by daniel uh, pink who's written a bunch of other great books to sell human is a great one i recommend too but when talks a lot about the science of timing and in particular he writes about the importance of knowing, in essence, whether you're a morning person, night person, or kind of in between. And that for morning people, uh, generally, it's exactly as you described, Lucia, the mid-afternoon is the slump. It's when people, they are the least productive. And to time, in essence, uh, things that are very administrative, that are require very little brain power <laughs> into those times. Now, if you're a night person, it can be different, right? The, the, the morning can be the worst time, uh, you know, depending on the person, but really understanding uh, each person has a, uh, is it different biology and, and different times that work well for them and knowing what times work for you, uh, I think is something that's super important. For instance, right now it's it's 4.30 p.m. in, more, in time the time um, where I am, which is right when I'm picking up energy. So this podcast, the timing uh, works pretty well because I'm getting energized. I'm not a huge fan of doing podcasts at like 2.30 in the afternoon, 
because it is tends to be, you know, energy period of time when I'm a little bit more lower energy. So it's important. But then uh, what think- gives you, yeah, but then what gives you energy, right? Because like, for me, like speaking to other people gives me tons of energy. So actually, this is time during my slump, but I'm feeling really energized, because like talking to you is something that excites me. Uh, you know, the topics that we're going to cover are exciting to me. And also, I can like feed off and other people's energy really well. And so for me, this is actually a perfect slump activity, whereas for you, it's not right. So it really goes to show that you, you just have to understand yourself and what works best for you in order to optimize how you spend your time. And I, I think as an introverted person, that's one of the things yeah. is that I find in terms of how I prepare for these episodes, it requires me having lots of energy. I have to be, I have to, I, I try to be very focused. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's partly it's, it goes beyond energy. It's like, when it, when does somebody have the most intellectual uh, clarity in their head? And I yeah. find it, for, at least for me, kind of 4 p.m. on, I have more mental clarity or in the morning versus <laughs> 1 to like 3 p.m. I feel like my mind is not as sharp as it is at sometimes other points uh, in, in the day. So uh, it's an interesting, I agree that there's different uh, kind of pros and cons. The, the other point that's interesting is about time blocking, which I actually recently started doing. And, and it's interesting, there's more research that backs up time blocking as like the most effective time management uh, tool, way more effective than to-do lists. Because to-do lists aren't time-bound in a lot of it. They're just a list of stuff to do. And I think the other point that that is important to note is that uh, time blocking can be really helpful for creativity. Uh, An issue that I've had for a long time is just constantly having email and Slack open and just constantly responding to messages, which was really hurting my, my creativity because I wasn't able to do deep focused work. One of the real positives of time blocking is you can say, this is similar to what you do. This is uninterrupted creative time, no interruptions, no email, no Slack, just focusing on creative work. And I think it's something that can be really helpful. I recommend uh, checking out Deep Work by Cal Newport, which is on this topic. uh, And it's really interesting. There's also a great Paul Graham essay called uh, Maker's Schedule versus Manager's Schedule. That is kind of interesting to check out uh, about why it's important to block off not just 30 minutes, but like three, four hour blocks for creative yeah. time. Cause that's where the best creative work takes place. Yeah. I do Tuesdays and Wednesdays for deep work. Like it's a whole, whole two days. Right. But the, I think also the context switching is really draining. So if you're spending your day going from like, Oh, I'm responding to an email about this. And then five seconds later, you have to completely change your, the, what your brain was thinking about and answer an email about something else and then take a call about something else. Just like over time, it drains you a lot more. So there are days when in theory, I've done more work, um, but I end up less tired than the days that I have like fully scheduled calls and the context switching required for all of them. I finished a day completely exhausted and no one gets it. They're like, you were, you were on the phone all day long. And I'm like, yeah, it was exhausting. <laughs> I know? completely agree. I, a few weeks ago, Lucia, I scheduled seven 30 minute uh, back-to-back calls with all people who I've never chatted with before, <laughs> all on different subjects on a Friday afternoon. So yeah. it went from 1.30 to five. And by 5 p.m., I was yeah. like, I am never doing actually, yeah, it was long. It was, yeah, it, I just was like, I can never do that. I'm never doing that again because I yeah. just felt my brain was completely uh, dead. Uh, so I, I agree. I think the context switching, it's also interesting. I've been doing some research on multitasking, and I, for a long time, was a really big multitasker. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, a lot of times I think people think multitasking makes them more efficient. But when you look at the research behind multitasking, it's that little bit of time just to switch between things. If you're doing multiple things at once, it actually wastes like 40% of your time. Uh, and that there's a transaction cost to switching. Like if someone thinks they can, they can do two things at once. 
In almost all cases, they can't. And they're actually just switching between things really quickly. So I think that your point is really important about beware of transaction costs when you're switching between activities. Yes. On the topic of personal development, you are also a big proponent of mind mapping. And I remember at the first, at the the training camp that you attended, you did a session on on mind mapping and it's something that has resonated with a lot of your fellow fellows. Can you describe mind mapping to our listeners? I know, but the 2017 fellows are going to give like a deep sigh right now. (laughs) They're like, again, she goes through it again. It's because I constantly talk about mind mapping and the impact it can have on a person's just overall well-being for me it was transformative like I uh, remember I started doing it in maybe 2015 or 16 I was going through a really difficult stage in my life and you know it was just I was working in an, in a team that was doing a lot of like product uh, innovation and they were doing a lot of like growth experiments to figure out if we could tap into new markets and every time we would take on one of these we would like break a product down completely or a feature down completely and it was just really interesting to see the parallels of how you can take, you know, a person and do the same thing and try to break up all of these segments. And so to mind map, really what you're doing is you're drawing a picture of yourself at the center on a blank sheet of paper, and then writing out these categories of aspects of your life that you are, that are really important to you. So for me, I use things like, uh, you know, uh, work and uh, values, friendships, family, uh, financial situation, um, I use things that relate to curiosity because I tend to, to be really, really, really curious about the world. Um, and then I take 20 minutes and just write any word that comes to my mind for those 20 minutes. And it could be misspelled. It could be in the wrong place. It could be repeated. It doesn't really matter. But taking those 20 minutes and just downloading all of your brain is really, really powerful. And then, you know, you want to do that a few times in different mindsets after a good day, after a bad day, you want to do it in the morning, in the evening. I've done it with tea. I've done it with whiskey. I've done it, you know, in different frames of mind. And then the goal is really, you look at those mind maps and you say, you know, what are these trends that are sort of popping up and what is your subconscious trying to tell you about something that maybe you're not fully processing or something you need to think about more. Um, For me that I've had, like, I call, I call them themes. So every year I come up with like a list of different themes and I base all of my resolutions around these themes that my subconscious is telling me like, Hey, this is something that's really important to you right now. Um, And I try to do these check-ins once a year. Um, So I do a series of six mind maps before setting any, any meaningful resolutions each year. And then anytime that there's been a drastic change in my life. So if I've, you know, completely decided that I'm going to forego living anywhere and decide to be fully nomadic, um, that was a good time to check in and just accounting for these major changes, because sometimes we don't know how things impact us until much later, and they seep out in different ways. So mind mapping is a way to really check in with yourself and build self awareness in terms of what you're prioritizing in the next few months of your life and how you can design certain targets so that they meet really why you want to do things, not just the fact that you want to do them. And the easiest example of success in that in that route is fitness for me. So initially, um, you know, I was going to the gym, like I was trying to go to the gym five to seven times a week, which is, you know, a lot. And for someone that didn't work out that consistently before, it was a big change. And I was having trouble sticking with it because I would do it for like a month, two months, three months, and then I would quit for, you know, the same. And so when I started mind mapping, I discovered you know, that the reasons why I was going to the gym, I was running on a treadmill, I was doing all of these things that you're supposed to do when you go to the gym. But the reason why I kept wanting to go to the gym was these themes that kept popping up in my mind maps were strength. And so I wanted to build strength, I wanted to feel strong and running on a treadmill doesn't really build strength, it builds resistance and stamina and things, but not strength. 
And so I started taking martial arts classes and then I was consistent for three years <laughs> um, and going right wherever I can. Now, obviously the pandemic has changed that, but I'm still taking you know some video classes. But the reason why I really wanted to do it, it was completely different than just wanting to do it. And so once I understood why it was easier to tap into the right you know, goals to be able to be consistent with the things that I wanted to do. And so it's really a powerful tool and I can't recommend it enough, obviously. One quote that, that came to mind in, when you were describing mind mapping is, is by Carl Jung, uh, the uh, psychologist, where he talks about that if you don't understand your unconscious, you will let your unconscious mind control you and call it fate. And yes. I think it's something that's so important. It's, it's to understand the why <laughs> behind different things. Yeah. And that our minds are often not logical and do things that try to trick us. So it's important to, to take the time to reflect because just yeah. relying on our gut instincts, there's so many cognitive distortions that everybody has that it, yeah. it is really important to take that time to reflect. Even what we feel is illogical and impulsive. Like there's a reason why that impulse came to be, right? It's not that it's not necessarily just impulse. It's that it was informed by things that perhaps you have not taken the time to process. And so you reacted naturally by something that was in your subconscious. And so I think it's really important to just take time and find out what's in there and figure out like, hey, is this worth bringing to the front, the forefront of my life? And if it is, then like, how can I do it in a way that's really productive and, and, you know, helps me become a, a more fulfilled person. So I just love it as a tool to do that. And I think self-awareness is something that I try to take pride in that I, I have built quite a bit, but it isn't by nature. It's like the intention of constantly checking in with myself and trying to figure out like, why am I, you know, behaving in this way? Why am I doing these things? Why do I want to do these things? And like, how do I take all of this that's in me and channel it into the right places so that I feel fulfilled as a person? You recently tweeted, resilience is a muscle. It's something that needs to be worked out uh, regularly. And I think that this relates to some of our previous topics that, that we talked about, uh, including work-life balance. Uh, but how do you foster that sense of, of, of resilience? And in particular, given all of the different things that you do, uh, you know, once, uh, how do you foster that, that sense of resilience um, while uh, kind of having that constant stress and, and pressure and, and, and constantly striving uh, to do more? I think I've become a lot better at the stress component. I think I'm uh, very energized uh, constantly, but I also think that I've done better at saying, I'm going to stress about this because it's actually something worth stressing about. It's within my control to address. Um, whereas I'm going to let go of stressing about things that perhaps are not within my control. Um, and making that intentional choice has been very difficult, but also it's been very healthy for me as a person because I used to just get very stressed about a lot of things, very anxious about a lot of things. I think the reason I tweeted that was I was giving a talk to a group of high schoolers in uh, Florida for uh, my sister, my half sister, she's a, a guidance counselor in Florida, and she works with uh, children of uh, newly landed immigrants, and they, they often have a language barrier, and so they're struggling to fit in and catch up with school and things like this, and so, um, you know, I was giving that talk and resilience kept coming up as a theme, and the reason for that is, you know, I do think it's a muscle. And I think in, in great part, it's really important that we understand that entrepreneurs are like constantly hard on themselves. Like we are constantly trying to strive for perfection. We want everything done to a T. We try to do things ourselves if we feel someone else can't do them to the degree that we want them done. And, and I think like the, the tighter we hold on to that, I think the more it we're, we're capable of like self-sabotaging and becoming barriers to our own success. 
And so I think the moment that you start accepting that failure is okay, that things don't have to be perfect, that's when you start really exercising that muscle a little bit because resilience is what's going to tell you, hey, I failed. It's not that big a deal. I'm going to fix it now, or I'm going to get someone you know, else to help me fix it, or I'm going to do all of these things to address the failure rather than prevent the failure from occurring in the first place. So the change of attitude that takes place from saying, I'm never going to fail to saying, oops, failed again, um, here's how I fix it and fix it fast, then that change, I think, is what really starts to tap into that muscle and, and build that resilience and saying, there's nothing that can happen to me and I will be thrown off by, I might be thrown off for a second, but then I'm gonna like, you know, exercise my muscle and try, try to figure out how to fix it, whether it's by myself or with other people. But I think really that change in attitude and saying, it's not that I'm trying to prevent failure, it's that I'm like moving toward my goalposts and then, you know, if failure comes along the way, I'm just going to deal with it, handle it, handle it, and make sure that my team is handling and that they have everything they need to handle these, these things as well, then I think that's really what I meant with that tweet. And I think it's something that entrepreneurs struggle to accept. Obviously, you know, I'm looking at this in hindsight of who I was in 2018 and who I am today. And till 2018, I was trying to prevent failure. And now I'm like constantly failing all the time. I've stopped apologizing for a lot of it. Like, sorry if I haven't gotten back to you yet. Um, but the, the key really there was that change in attitude and saying like, actually it is a muscle and I get better and more adaptable at solving problems. The more I have problems to solve, it's not that I'm looking for them, but I'm not afraid of them anymore. There's a really important distinction, I think, between perfectionism and healthy striving. Uh, and I recently wrote an op-ed on this. So it's something that comes uh, to mind very, uh, very kind of clearly is that, you know, perfectionism, uh, perfectionist in general view that as the, the name perfectionism indicates, everything needs to be perfect and that failure is a bad thing. Uh, and that they can't make any kind of mistakes. And they also place more emphasis on the outcome than the journey. I think healthy strivers recognize, they set high standards, but they recognize that failure is a part of life, that it's going to happen, that everybody is inherently flawed. And that means everybody inherently makes mistakes. Uh, and that the journey matters as much as, as the outcome. And that in a lot of cases, even if we put all of our effort in, there's way more luck in life than people oh, yeah. are most cases are willing to accept. And that means that they, that focus on the journey. Cause that's what you can con control. Don't yeah. focus on uh, the, the outcome. And I think that that that's, that has been a running theme through a lot of the podcast episodes, but I think it's something that's really important for people because yeah. I think our school system conditions us on the outcome, get a good grade, um, mm -hmm. you know, get into X university, but mm -hmm. the journey is so important. I think just in the early stages of entrepreneurship, and I remember making so many mistakes in the early days because I was so concerned of making sure everything was perfect, that I presented the perfect pitch, that I, uh, you know, wrote out this proposal or this plan in the perfect way, that I said everything in the right way and so on and so forth. And it was really like, it was a moment of, you know, I wish if I could go back, I would wish I knew this sooner because it was one of those things where you become your the, the obstacle in your own way by saying, I need to do things in a certain way. It prevents you from asking for help sooner. It prevents you from tapping into people that want to help. It's just that you don't know how to give them what they need in order to help you. Um, I think it's, it's just a big barrier in your own way. So I think the sooner that, you know, and the earlier that people can start looking into themselves and saying like, hey, you know, fine. It'll be fine. If I, if I make a mistake, it'll be fine. If it's not perfect, like, Hey, I can send a correction. That's fine. Like it's, you know, nothing, the world isn't going to end because I had to send a correction. That's fine. So I think the, those moments are really the ones that start to, to exercise this resilience muscle, because then it's like, well, I made a mistake. What do I do? Cool. I'll send a correction. 
Um, and then it becomes much more of a natural instinct. And then the more you practice it, the easier it is to sort of just be a resilient, strong person and build a resilient organization and, and company. And that mistakes happen. And that once a mistake's taking place, you can't change it. You can learn from it, yeah, exactly. but yes. you can't change it. it. It's happened. It's the past. And yeah. I think that's something that's really like, don't agonize over it uh, uh, yeah. because focus on the future and learn from it. Uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, it's really important to not kind of agonize over, over past mistakes. And I, I think that this, you know, a, a challenge I've seen in through my work at Venture for Canada is this increasing rise of perfectionism. And I, yeah. as a perfectionist, as a reform, trying as a uh, attempted <laughs> reformed perfectionist, I think it's a really important point for people uh, and for our listeners, many whom, whom are, are young Canadians to really think about is try not to be a perfectionist. Even though society yeah. puts a lot of pressure on you to be a perfectionist, even though your parents might put pressure on you to be a perfectionist, even though you put pressure on yourself to be a perfectionist, like let yeah. go of the perfectionism. And sometimes also don't feel the need to be productive all the time. You know, like feel, yes. you know, yes. like to, to Lucia's point, I love uh, the, the concept of like a Sabbath, like take one day a yeah. week where you literally, it's just for yourself and unplug, don't check anything. Yeah. And some nights yeah. just do watch a bunch of Netflix because you want to like, don't, I think we yeah. live in particularly an entrepreneurial ecosystem pressure for people to constantly be productive. And yeah. as Lucia's Lucia does all this stuff as, as she's, she's, you've talked about Lucia, but you also carve out time just to chill and that's yeah. important. And it's important. People don't feel guilty about that. Yeah. And that was a very hard learning lesson for me. Cause I used to work seven days a week. And then I would expect employees to take a day off or two or three. And then they'd be like, well, no, I'd rather not. And I realized that I was setting the, the worst example for them because if I never take time off, then even if I permission unlimited vacation as a company policy, if I don't set the standard for what that means, and if I don't say, hey, I'm going to take a vacation when I need it, then like, there's no sense in, you know, in having that policy because I'm not creating the culture that accompanies that policy. So I, I, I actually didn't do that for myself. I did it for, you know, the people that worked with me to make sure that they felt comfortable taking their days off. And then in the process sort of realized that it was a very healthy thing for me to do when I've come to love my Saturdays. I think people are afraid of emailing me on Saturdays now, <laughs> but it's really just this, this idea of like, you know, you are so lucky to have a place in the world with privilege and, you know, to go to a museum or to go for a walk or to do something fun or to escape, you know, in, in, in a sense of the world, like escape some of your responsibilities for a brief amount of time. Like that's something that, that you shouldn't take for granted because there are many people in the world that can never escape their realities, right? So it's almost like we have a, at least to me, I, it feels like I have a sense of obligation to not just be committed to solving these like really big problems, but also saying along the way, like, hey, there's a life to be lived here and I'm so lucky to be able to live it. Makes and me a better entrepreneur, I think too. I agree. And that sometimes it's just important to live in the moment and just you yeah. know, sit in the sun and, or, you know, go to the beach and just, or yeah. play with a, you know, a, a pet and just kind of just enjoy it. Uh, Cause it, we only have, have, have one life. And uh, one reflection I've had as well, Lucia is, is uh, in the early days of venture for Canada, I would send emails every day. I was on vacation. I would send emails on the weekend all the time. I would send emails after hours all the time. And one of the things I realized is I was setting a bad tone for everybody in the organization. I was setting a tone of perfectionism and workaholism. Yeah. And one of the things yeah. I've recently actually in the last like month started to, to do is no emails on the weekend. Not even, I don't even check it. I, I actually, I specifically by 5 PM, I'm like no email to Monday. 
And uh, frankly, it's really hard for me to do it. Like, I feel like I'm a, an, an addict. Like I'm trying to like stop myself from check. And I, and I actually have consistently not done it for a month. Uh, but I, I'd say that I think it sets such a healthier tone with people who, who are, work with me uh, that I don't do that uh, because ultimately CEO sets a tone. Uh, and the other thing too, is I also just feel a lot more refreshed uh, and creative. I, I feel more creative than I've been in a long time because I'm not checking. And, and the thing I realized is that, so, you know, 5 PM, I'd stop checking email and then Monday I check it and I might have 30, 40 emails of which maybe six or seven require responses. And yeah. before I would check my email, maybe 20 times on the weekend. And one of the things I realized is, Hey, if something's urgent, call or text me, right? Like it's not that I'm not that important that I need to be checking my email 20 <laughs> times over, over the weekend. Uh, and, and people that's that more, need to reach you will reach you. People that need to reach you will reach you. And it's more me not being comfortable with certainty, uncertainty, by me constantly needing to check email than it is any actual logical need for me to be constantly checking email. And all it does is cause anxiety by all the different kind of staff members. So it's to say there's certain jobs, yes, you do need to check like the very few ones. If you're like running something urgent this 24 seven and you know what, maybe there's some, some, some jobs, but 99% of jobs, you don't need to check your email on the weekend. And uh, yeah, it's an important thing. I think for people, I wish I, I, I wish I had gotten that advice to myself when I was 22. I think I would have yeah. saved myself some heartache and some, uh, some, un, uh, you know, needed stress. Um, but, uh, so just on a, on a final question, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, uh, Lucia, you are a voracious reader and, uh, somebody who is constantly reading as we, we, we talk, often talk about, uh, at training camp in the first year, where you, uh, got me a great book, uh, Comandante, on, uh, on uh, Hugo Chavez and kind of politics of, of Venezuela. And I've always known, you know, in the, the, the four years since we know each, we've met each other, how uh, voracious of a reader you are. So what are uh, three books that you recommend to our listeners and why? Um, I think that book was really interesting, by the way, Comandante, because it, it, it showed how he used monetary policy to really push his agenda. Um, and it was quite devastating to read, in my opinion, um, because it was just like a really well thought out strategy of, of how to use money really to, um, I guess, like, push himself onto all of these different public institutions and weaken them from inside. It's a, it's, I still remember that book. It's a good book. Um, yeah, you're, you're a voracious reader, too. So this question, I'm trying to think of books that maybe you haven't already recommended to, <laughs> to BFC fellows. But I think the most Im impactful book that I've uh, that I've read in the past few years has been Half the Sky. Um, Half the Sky is written by a married couple. They're both journalists that have been reporting on women's issues for a very long time. Um, they're both award-winning and the book is award-winning and it started off a whole movement. But essentially what it does is it tells stories of women that are in situations of oppression around the world and each case is a different form of oppression. And then it talks about the ways in which economic freedom and economic opportunity can go and sort of lift them out of these situations of, of oppression. And so it's a very difficult book to read because the first chapter in each set and each case is about the forms of oppression. And some of those are really difficult to just process as a human being. Um, but then the other uh, chapter is a much more, you know, uh, inspiring read because it talks about all of these different ways in which we can enable people to come out of different situations of oppression. And for me, it, it was a book that it's not, I guess, related to the startup world. It's not related to technology, but it's one of those books that just makes you think about like 
the human impact of the things that we build as, you know, creators. And I think that it also makes me think, you know, a lot more holistically about how to design something with real intention behind it and real potential impact behind it, because it's thought about the, the different lived experiences of potential users. And so I think for me, it was really a book about empathy and, and intelligent uh, empathy when designing uh, products and things like that. And it's something I've taken on in my company quite strongly. The other book I was completely fascinated by that I've read recently is called Prisoners of Geography. Um, it's a fantastic book that gives you 10 maps of the world and then sort of walks you through the geologic and geographic components of those, those areas and how those components inform foreign policy. And I think that's a fascinating thing because so often we reduce foreign policy to societal issues, to cultural issues, to politics. It's very, you know, in this era of saying, hey, you know, we are, uh, you know, we're moving along these like lines of extremes and, and people can't sort of seem to come together if they disagree on something. Um, I think understanding that there are more factors than just uh, opinion and personal perspective and personal belief that there are actually geographic reasons why certain things have gone the way they have. I think it was a very interesting read to sort of put the world into perspective. And I think the more connected we are and the more of the world that we see, even if it's through a book, I think the better we are able to find our place in the world um, and the better we are able to design the types of companies that belong in the world and belong with, with people around the world. So I think those two books have been the most impactful. As for the third one, I think I guess this is like off the beaten path because it's not even a book, it's a journal, but I'm gonna go with the gratitude journal. <laughs> it is technically a book, right? Because uh, actually I just find that it's a really healthy practice and I've been, uh, exactly, see, <laughs> you have it. I think I'm, I just wanna give that one because I know sometimes for people like the person that I was in 2018, it's really hard to find ways to become meditative, to take first steps towards self-awareness, to take first steps towards um, just like building the kinds of internal mental tools that you need as to become a better entrepreneur. And that book for me was one of the things that just like helped put me on a path um, of just sitting down and like reflecting for the day, thinking a little bit about, you know, what I'm grateful for, my place in the world, my intention for tomorrow. So I think it's just a really helpful thing. I was going to say a book you should read, but actually I think this is a better, a better recommendation just because of you know, sometimes we all need help trying to get on a path toward mental health. And this is an easy tool that can help put you on that path. So I hope it's useful to people that take it on as a recommendation. I love a gratitude journal as well. It's called for, for our listeners, it's, it's called the five minute journal. Uh, you can buy it easily online. And uh, for Adventure for Canada, we actually around a month ago, I decided to offer um, all staff to be able to purchase this and, and, and uh, expense it to VFC. Because I think yeah. it's it was an investment. Or it is an investment in employees' uh, mental health, uh, and I actually started doing it um, in middle of March uh, when I, I was definitely feeling kind of some of the COVID blues. And uh, I think it's in something that is in super helpful. Uh, although there's a certain types of questions that that like there's a certain questions for our listeners. You have to fill it every day. Like, what are three things you're grateful for? What are three things that make this a great day? Uh, and one fun thing that's kind of funny in, in lockdown uh, is that because the days are, are sometimes quite similar, uh, is that uh, the things are very similar every day. So sometimes I'm like playing with my cat, my partner. Uh, going for a walk. Uh, so it, it's going to be very interesting to, to look at this years from now and see, oh, I had some very similar entries for like uh, many days because my days were very, very similar. Uh, but I, I'm a big yeah. fan of, of, uh, of gratitude journals. And it, there's a lot of science yeah. backing up that just doing this on a daily basis can make you 
uh, it's not like a, you know, a, a, a silver pill that can just, you know, take away depression. And th- so, you know, I don't oversell it, but I, for most people, it is a, a, a really easy to implement habit that can make yeah. you more grateful. Yeah. And for me, it was just like a first step, right? It was saying like this, it didn't come naturally to me at the time. And it, you know, mental health and self-awareness building didn't come naturally to me at the time, except for mind mapping. So I just wanted to um, build like ways to incorporate that into my day. And that, I that just, I found that so helpful as a very simple way to do that. So I just think, you know, if you're struggling with a place to start, then that might be a, a an easy place to start or a relatively easy place to start. And then, and then it becomes a question of like, maybe you can challenge yourself so that your entries don't look the same every day. And so, you know, maybe today you choose to play like a card game with your partners just so that you could, you know, be a little grateful for an extra something that made your day a little more special than yesterday. I, I agree. I think I need to make it a little bit more creative than sometimes yeah. I just putting the same thing, similar things as grateful uh, for, or uh, um, uh, I can't just put things that make today great a walk um, uh, as a uh, uh, sort of thing. So that's a good advice. Specificity. specificity, like I saw something on my walk and I'm grateful for what I saw on the walk. Like I, I think um, the other day I was out for a walk with my nephew uh, and I was playing this, he was with a friend. And so we were playing this game of, you know, like a search, I guess. Uh, I can't remember what the name is, like a scavenger hunt. And so I would, we were going on this walk and I'd be like, find me a white rock, find me a gray rock, find me a black rock, find me a red flower. And I just like kept looking for all of these things. And they would get so excited about red flowers and finding blue flowers. And every piece of trash they picked up on their walk was a bonus point toward a prize. Um, and so I think like, it's just, the pandemic in many ways like yeah it's sad that we have to say a walk is the most exciting part of the day but also like it in if looking at it through the eyes of a child like it really can unleash a lot of creativity and imagination on our part today it's required almost so that we can make it through this kind of like real difficult time um and so I just I think I would hope that a gratitude journal would inspire people to say you know like hey how privileged am I that I get to be home and that I get to take this walk because you know I'm currently in Honduras as you know and the health system here is completely collapsed. And there are so many people that are suffering in Colombia today because of the political situation there in you know, all different parts of the world. And so it's really something that uh, is present on my mind. And as I go through the pandemic and as I write in that journal, I just like, and, and as I read books about the world and sort of keep track of the news, you sort of figure out that your place in the world right now is a happy one, despite all of the difficulty, right? Agreed. And- that there's a lot of, I think one of the things a lot of people have reflected on during the pandemic is just the little joys of yeah. going for a walk outside or yeah. uh, gardening uh, and just slowing down and kind of appreciating the, the little things of, of life. And, and I actually yeah. have gotten more joy out of walking and running than I think I have ever have in my entire life. And yeah, I'm you're like 20 pages grateful for it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I, I am, I am actually very appreciative of, of all the walks and a lot, a lot of one thing that has um, graced my gratitude journal a lot lately is the spring, which, uh, which is, uh, especially in Canada where it's quite cold in the winter. Uh, it is really nice. And I probably appreciate the spring this year, even though it's quite rainy, uh, more than, more than other years. And I think just practicing that gratitude is, is super important. And it relates to the perfectionism conversation that we had earlier, right? The, I think that the more gratitude you have for little things, the, the more that uh, you can overcome, I think, challenges and have that sense of resiliency. Lucia, it has been a pleasure chatting today. We've touched a lot of different co- uh, topics, including gratitude journals, uh, time management, uh, no emails on the weekend, 
uh, how your story of launching Emerge and the exciting work that you're doing uh, with UN SDGs. What are UN SDGs? A really wide range of different topics. Lucia, you are a remarkable person. Uh, and uh, I've seen that since we first met uh, four years ago. Uh, really excited to see what you continue to do and as Emerge continues to, to grow. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to, to talk with you again, and I hope we get to do it again soon. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our social and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at Venture4Canada. That is Venture, the number four, Canada. Or email us at podcast at Venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Sturt, and until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful. A New Wave of Entrepreneurship is produced by Winita Lee Garcia and Latifa Farah. Editing and mixing also done by Latifa Farah. Erica Ormanston is our editorial assistant. Mark Wallach and Premium Beat own the copyright and publishing rights related to the song used in this podcast. The comments and opinions, recommendations, or suggestions expressed on the podcast by the guests are not liable to Venture for Canada and belong solely to each individual. Any information provided stated by our guests and our host is independent of Venture for Canada. A new wave of entrepreneurship is a Venture for Canada brand and all content is owned by Venture for Canada. If you'd like to use our content, please reach out to us at podcast at venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca.